Let's take a moment to come before God in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in uh, all the busyness of this time of year, we have found the time to come here this morning. Thank you that as we gather here in fellowship, your word tells us that when two or three are gathered together, you are there in the midst of them. And we believe that you're here, wanting to speak to every heart and mind gathered, bringing us what we need to hear this morning. So take these fallible words and fill them with your word that you might speak to us this morning, person to person, and that we might know that we have been with you and heard from you. So hear our prayers because we ask them all in Christ's name. Amen. The Miss Manners column has been running in American newspapers since 1978, and it responds slightly tongue-in-cheek to readers' questions about things like etiquette, civility, awkward situations, and which fork to use for dessert. One of her recent replies might stand you in good stead over the festive season, and I offer it to you this morning. The reader wanted to know what kind of topics would be useful for drawing someone you didn't know very well into an interesting conversation. And Miss Manners' clever reply was this. She said, anything other than, I've been on a fantastic journey of self-discovery recently, and I'd really like to tell you about it. That's what you're to avoid at all costs. If you Google the phrase, fascinating journey of self-discovery, you get 13 and a half million hits in a fraction of a second. I wonder if there's ever been an age quite as enthralled with learning about ourselves as this one. For me, that's another symptom of what happens when we push God from the center. We become obsessed about ourselves, and it doesn't take an especially deep look at our society to recognize that that's where we're at. As I said last week, the self-help gurus are raking it in these days, offering promises of personal transformation that nobody can hold them to account for. Did that 9.99 paperback really make us thinner, happier, healthier, or less stressed? In popular culture, it's reached a point of parody that almost every contestant in X Factor or Britain's Got Talent has got some kind of emotional baggage in their locker or some kind of issues that they've had to overcome. Unpacking that stuff in front of the nation makes the hoped-for journey from sadness to success seem all the more remarkable. Or maybe the word is marketable. These tell-all narratives have taught us to view self-discovery as central to life. And I've met many people in the church and outside it who describe the spiritual life in precisely those terms. It's a quest to realize your deep inner identity so you can be true to who you are really are. Now, self-knowledge and self-examination are certainly a big part of the Christian tradition. John Calvin said that there are two kinds of knowledge that are central to faith, knowledge of God, but also knowledge of self. And I think he was 100% right. We need both. So, I'm certainly not arguing that we should skate over the issue of who we really are. 
On the contrary, we need to know ourselves as we try to walk with God. It's very hard to receive God's forgiveness if you don't know what you need forgiven for. And it's hard to use the gifts that He's given you for the benefit of the world if you haven't identified what those gifts are. As Christians, knowing who we are is important. But it's just as important to know and to come to terms with who we're not. And that brings us to one of the people that we often think about in Advent, John the Baptist. And in today's gospel reading, John is exceptionally clear about who he isn't. The Pharisees are intrigued and worried about John and what he's doing. Why are all these people going out to see him? What's his agenda? Who does he actually claim to be? And that they already have their own ideas about this is clear from the text. As far as they're concerned, he's either the Messiah, or he's Elijah returned, or he's a prophet in the mold of Moses. But John just says, no, no, no. None of the above. If John knows anything, he knows who he's not. So what are these roles the Pharisees want to box him into? Well, they're all characters who were central to Jewish religious expectation in those days. The Messiah we know a little about. He was the long-awaited anointed one who would fulfill the hopes of Israel in the last days, crushing oppressors, reviving the nation, and ushering in God's reign, a godly warrior king to lead the people into freedom. That's what they were hoping for. Although, as we now know, Jesus proved to be a very different kind of Messiah, so different that most of his own people didn't recognize him when he came, and the Jewish folk are still waiting for the Messiah to come today. As for the other two, Elijah and Moses, there's a lots of scholarly debate about what they might symbolize. Elijah was one of the greatest and most dramatic prophets in the Old Testament, and there was a tradition that Elijah himself would personally return to usher in the reign of the Messiah. And talk about the prophet goes back to a verse in Deuteronomy, which says that one day God would send another prophet like Moses to lead the people in their latest quest for freedom. We don't know all the associations that the first century Jew would have had with those titles, but broadly speaking, we end up with three pigeonholes that the Pharisees wanted to put John into. He's either the Messiah, he's a revered, charismatic, prophetic leader from history, or he's a lawgiver and leader for the future. No, says John. No, no, no. None of the above. If I'm sure of anything, I'm sure of who I'm not. So the delegation from the Pharisees is starting to get a bit edgy by that stage. Look, we have to take some answer back. They sent us here to find out about you. Who are you if you're not any of these three things? And John replies in the words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord John didn't go on a fascinating journey of self-discovery and then express himself copiously by sharing it. That's not what identity means to him. Who John is, 
is defined by the call and the identity that God has given him to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. To say it even more briefly, who John is is defined by who Jesus is and his relationship to him. And this is where things start to come home a wee bit for you and me. Nobody's going to mistake us for the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet anytime soon. But all of us are offered any number of images on which to base our identities these days. Or we're encouraged to find them by going on a journey of self-discovery. Who are you? How do you define yourself? Where do you get your sense of value and identity from? I had a really interesting conversation with Adams, the African student that Alan had staying with him last weekend. He really struggled to understand why young people in our society are so switched off from God and from the church. And I had to try and explain to him the slow slide into secularism that our country's gone through over the past 50 years. And the thing is, when folk push God from their lives, or where a society relegates him to the margins, there's a big space left behind. And we tend to fill that space in one of two ways. We fill it with stuff, materialism, or we fill it with ourselves, which starts out as humanism, but often ends up as narcissism. I had a long conversation last week with a man who was a committed atheist and was trying to convince me that the world would be a much better place if we could just get rid of religion. I reminded him that that's pretty much what we've done in the UK over the last 50 years, and I don't see our country becoming a happier or a more well-adjusted place. Quite the reverse, actually, as even the secular surveys are telling us. We think that getting rid of God is going to set us free, and I guess it does, in the same way that sowing off the branch you're sitting on sets you free from that pesky tree that's been holding you up all this time. The theologian and writer Malcolm Gite sees the same thing happening in the world of poetry. He says that in olden times, the image of the poet was the bird flying free wherever it would, seeing the world from different perspectives, maybe even a divine perspective, rising high and getting that bigger view of the world and what's going on. But Geit notices that in our part of the world, where the culture has largely dismissed God as irrelevant, our horizons seem to have shrunk as a direct consequence. With nothing to elicit, mystery and wonder, the bird of poetry has become trapped in the cage of self. And the bars on that cage are mirrored. So all that we have to talk and write about are the confusing fragments of ourselves that we glimpse there. Those are the obsessions of modern poetry. So much so that a late return to spiritual themes and language by Seamus Heaney was deemed as brave by his peers. It was so countercultural. We don't know who we are anymore in our part of the world. And so, we construct an identity around the things we own, as though our homes and our cars and our possessions could define us. 
or we construct an identity around our struggle for wholeness. I discovered a new word a few months ago, and though you might not know this word, you certainly know what it means. It's the word sad fishing, one word, sad fishing, which means deliberately making out that things in your life are worse than they are to attract sympathy. Sad fishing. It's very big in Facebook, I have to tell you. Or we construct an identity about the roles that fall to us in life and try to be messiahs, trying to fix everyone and everything, but running ourselves ragged in the process. C.S. Lewis once wrote of someone, she's the sort of woman who lives for others, and you can tell the others by their hunted expression. clergy, I have to tell you, are especially bad for Messiah complexes. It took me about eight years in this parish to realize that I didn't have to turn up to Kirk Session meetings having all the answers already figured out and feeling responsible for absolutely everything. Matt Canlis and I figured that out around the same time, and it was freeing for us both. We are not responsible became our new mantra. Not that we're irresponsible, but we realized that we're there to help lead the work of the Kirk Session. But it's the Kirk Session of which we are a part who are responsible for taking decisions and discerning the way forward. And it's God who gives the growth, not us. We were stressed out of our boxes, feeling that everything was resting on our shoulders, and we had to try and recover a better vocational identity. And though we're well on the way, the learning goes on. There's a common strand running through all our wrong-headed searching for identity, and it's that we're starting from the wrong place. Intentionally, or maybe unintentionally, we're trying to find our value and identity somewhere other than in God. And that's something that all human beings are prone to do, whether we do it in a big way, by embarking on a fascinating journey of self-discovery that bores our dinner companions to death, or just do it in the small, routine, building up of daily habits that keep us depending on ourselves or on others. John had been freed from those dependencies. You can tell by the way he flat out rejected any identity other than his real one. Are you this? No. Are you that? No. No, no, no. Then what do you say about yourself? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Because John knew who he wasn't, he also knew who he was. The only identity that defined him wasn't something that he found within or constructed to satisfy himself or chased after to live up to others' expectations. It was the identity that God gave him as a gift. Who John is is defined by who Jesus is. And it's exactly the same for you and me. We're designed to look to Jesus for our identity, to be named and chosen and treasured by Him first and foremost. All the other stuff follows from that. 
being a parent, being a grandparent, being a husband, a wife, a worker, a member of a church, that's all great, but it, it should flow from that first prior thing that we realize, which is that we are the beloved of God. We need to learn to approach God based on who Jesus is and who we are in Him. We need to approach God based on Jesus' pedigree, not ours. His works, not ours. His value, not ours. Waiting for us down at the most primal level of our being is an identity and value from God that comes to us as a gift from Christ, the kind of bedrock assurance that gave John the freedom to look at a bunch of powerful people and say, no, that's not who I am. This is who I am. If we're Christians, we hold title to that freedom and that assurance. You may not have claimed it, but you hold the title. Who we are is defined by who Jesus is, and this is something that no one can ever take away from us. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you this? Are you that? Are you a failure? Are you a success? Are you naughty? Are you nice? Are you popular? Are you respected? Are you needed? Are you wanted? Are you defined by your best moments or by your worst mistakes? No, no, and no again, we can say. I've joined myself to Jesus. And who I am, who I really am, flows from who He is. I have not been on a fascinating journey of self-discovery recently, and I would not like to share it with you. Thanks be to God, we have far better things to talk about. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word.